Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, hello, lovely listeners. Welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Um, On the day that we are recording this, the store is closed. Uh, We have had our second sort of COVID scare. Um, Staff are tested positive. They don't have symptoms. Everybody is getting tested and quarantining. Um, So we are closed for in-store browsing for the next two weeks. reopening hopefully on February 10th. Um, But yeah, I I bring this up, you know, I know this podcast, you may be listening to this many, many days in the future when everything seems normal again, but I just wanted to kind of give you a sense of where we are in time and what we're dealing with as booksellers um, on the ground because it's scary out there. And, um, you know, one of the good things about my job is that I mostly get to work from home and I get to talk to authors from the safety of my bedroom. Um, and I'm very excited today to be talking to Katie DiSabato about her new book, You Up. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. But um, just, yeah, reflecting on uh, what a weird year it's been, um, all of the things we've been through together as a staff. And um, I just, yeah, I want to thank you guys for listening and being there for us um, and keeping us, keeping us buoyant through all of this. Um, so thank you. All right. So today we are talking about the new novel, You Up, which is the follow-up to Katie DiSabato's smart debut, The Ghost Network, which had a great cover you may have seen, a bit of an Illuminati vibe. Um, So You Up creates a vivid portrait of a young woman investigating her best friend's disappearance while navigating codependent friendships, toxic exes, and witchy rituals. So... Over a frantic weekend, the main character, Eve, is investigating the disappearance of her friend, Ezra, scouring social media for clues while drowning her anger and anxiety in drinks, drugs, and spiritual cleansing. She starts to spiral as her friends try to convince her that she's overreacting, and ghosts, both real and metaphorical, continue to haunt her. When she uncovers clues to a life about her, a life her friend kept hidden, Eve starts to question how much she really knows about her best friend and herself. All right, so Katie DiSabato is the author of The Ghost Network, which was deemed a smart and thorny debut that reveals treasures to readers, according to the New York Times. DiSabato has written essays and criticism for outlets including The LAist, BuzzFeed, and LA Weekly. She lives in Los Angeles. Katie, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on. I'm really excited. Yeah, and you're actually a listener of this podcast. I am. I'm so flattered. 
<laughs> it's great. I love to hear authors talk about their books. And so it's really, um, it's like, I feel like first time listener, long time caller vibes right now. <laughs> well, um, we're so glad to have you. And I'm excited to talk more about this book because um, it's a very LA book and it's dealing with a lot of the kind of of the moment things. Um, we've got our ghosts, we've got our social media, we've got witches, um, all very LA things. And, um, and it's a noir as well. And yeah. I, lo I love a good mystery. And I think it's a great time to be talking about mysteries as we are kind of um, experiencing a big rainstorm here in LA right now. And it's feeling especially spooky in the city. Yeah, I actually um, think that noir is one of the like, I want to say like the natural genres of Los Angeles or one of the core like sort of fiction genres that I really associate with the city. Um, and I wanted um, very much like the movement of a noir book or movie, movie with the person who's always kind of going like from location to location. Um, real, I really wanted that to be part of this, mm -hmm. um, this book. Yeah. And I, okay, maybe this is like a big question to start with, but why do you think LA and noir fit together so well? Like, why is that the kind of icon, one of the iconic genres here in this city where we make all of the content? <laughs> right. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, I think that like, yeah, I actually, I like, I actually have no idea like what, like where the origin of the genre came from. I have this, like, it's, you can't really um, see it. Uh, I'm gonna, Let's edit that out. But yeah, I have this like book sitting behind me on the bookshelf that's like right that I'm sitting in front of that none of you can see. Um, that is called LA Noir. Um, and it's like a huge book and I like ha still haven't like fully read it and don't really understand why the genre kind of started here. Um, so the why question is hard for me to answer. So I'm going to transition more to like um, a what or what it means, which essentially yes. for me is like, you know, noir to me is a very, um, it's very stylized genre. It, it, it's gritty, but it's not realistic, you know, um, in everything from the way that people talk to the way that they dress to the way that they act and drink feels like very heightened. Um, and that is, you know, I think one of the things that draws me to it is I don't, even when some, when I'm writing a book that has realistic characters, realistic settings or situations, I like a sort of heightened version of that um, because I think that that is an element that kind of tra can transport you to another world when you are, um, you know, reading. So, that's what I love about noir and that's how I feel about noir and that's what I wanted to put in the book why we have that in LA I don't know maybe we were trying to like play against type um you know uh LA had especially you know like recently the reputation of Los Angeles has changed but if you go back to the 60s 70s um it you know, was really thought of as just like this bright, sunny, 70 degrees and sunny every day, kind of shallow place. And noir is all about nighttime, it's all about shadows, and it's all about hidden depth. So maybe it was just like a counter narrative thing. But, mm -hmm. you know, people who are like much smarter about like the history of fiction or the history of genre fiction can are probably like screaming at their 
device right now being like she has no idea and i don't yeah i mean you know raymond chandler uh james elroy we've got a lot of the heavy hitters who have kind of made their home here and and set their books here the book i always think about when i think about la noir is in a lonely place by dorothy v hughes which is i haven't read that i keep meaning to read that it's been on my list for like ever Mm -hmm. i just haven't haven't pried it open yet well someday you'll get to it and you'll be blown away but the reason i bring it up is because it is all about like the secret darkness of la like like the physical darkness like so much of that book is set with the main character just like driving through the canyons where it's all foggy and like you know shoving shoving women out of his car and murdering them (laughs) yeah um but like there is like i think la has that like kind of two-facedness to it right where like yeah it does look really shiny and beautiful and there's palm trees and sun every day but then like the weather can shift like it has today we have this big thunderstorm um and and things get kind of dredged up from the canyons and from the mud um and i think yeah i think i think that is just part of the essence of this place so it makes a lot of sense to be Kind of updating that for our millennial era with kind of a, a social media noir yeah set in LA because that is where a lot of the the darkness is nowadays yeah absolutely <laughs> a lot of darkness on social media and um one thing I do want to say is that you know this was present before I started writing the book but it's really present in our current moment now is that like there's like a huge dark side to social media that has to do with politics with the shape of our society and our culture um with the way that we can um you know even the way that we can organize or the people can organize not just in positive ways but in really negative ways to kind of um bring real world changes that are either very chaotic or very negative. Um, One other thing to put into context is we're right in the middle of that um, GameStop, Robinhood, um, stock, I like, don't want to call it manipulation because they're doing legal things, but you know, like there's all this and, and, and we're, you know, months out from an or, or weeks out, excuse me, from like an organized insurrection against <laughs> our country that was organized on social media. So, so there is this like really, really big negative dark side to the internet, to social media, um, that exists that is present and that we can't get away from thinking about. But with this book, I wanted to, I, want to focus this conversation and also the book itself is focused on a kind of different emotional dark side of social media which has like a lot less to do with like politics and the place of social media in like the world order and more about like how shitty it feels if you like see a picture of all of your friends and they like went to the movies and they didn't invite you and you don't know why Mm -hmm. um the dreaded FOMO yeah but that's not even that's like that's fomo but that's like not just fomo that's not like oh i wish i could be there it's Mm -hmm. like is something wrong are my friends mad at me um did i did i do something bad are they awful people did they just not think of me maybe i'm not as good friends with my friends as i thought i was maybe they don't really like me and never really did Mm -hmm. um and so when i talk about like the dark side of social media in regards to this book, like that's what I'm talking about is how it can make you feel really, really bad to be online. Yes. Um, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are feeling that so hard right now because online is all we have. (laughs) 
it's all we have and like what people are doing online right now is like can be very contentious mm -hmm. um whew, it's complicated time yes yes seeing seeing those instagram posts of people who are traveling and having parties and i haven't left my apartment for months yeah. i'm like must be nice yeah it's <laughs> not really, care. it's really really bleak uh it's really really bleak um and you know i was um i finished this book before like the the draft of this book was finished before covid started um but i was editing it during um the during the pandemic and i mean this is getting a little bit like inside baseball crafty stuff um but hopefully stuff, people though. yeah yeah hopefully people care about this but um the the texting format in the book was not established once I finished like the draft that was like, you know, the story draft and, and, and whatever. Um, because obviously a designer, um, a visual designer ended up designing the interior of the book and the way that the text messages look. So just for some context, um, a lot of the conversations in the book happen over text, just like in real life. And, um, they are visually represented on the page. It's it's kind of like the original idea was that you could you were sort of holding the main character's phone and could see all of her texts that were going on there. Our narrator Eve, um, the representation that ended up on the page is a little bit more like graphic and a little bit less like literal, like looks like a phone, um, which I think improves the readability. Um, but because you know they. Um, you know, made this design and then we saw the design that was slightly different than what I had envisioned when I was writing, I actually had to edit the text messages a little bit in order to fit the visual format. And so I had to read through the entire book at a certain point during COVID, um, you know, skimming in some places, but, but really like almost reading every single word over just to rewrite the text and make sure it all worked, you know? Um, it was essentially like I was rewriting to a certain extent, almost every dialogue exchange in the book, um, which honestly didn't take that much time, but it meant I reread the whole book. And this book is such a pre-COVID book. Um, like, like the whole weekend, it just it takes place over one weekend, and Eve, the narrator, is just like moving around from like bar to bar, from friend's house to friend's house, you know, from social engagement to social engagement. And I was like, it was like, I was, my feelings were so hurt. I was like, I just want to do one fraction of the things that she did, and I can't do anything. <laughs> So yeah, that's that's rough when your characters have more freedom than you do. But I guess that's also why we write, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, so let's go back to the beginning pre-pandemic. Um, how did you how did you come to this story? I, I wanted to ask this, you know, for my own reasons, but also because in the marketing for this book, it, it's connected explicitly to your first book. But I wanted to yeah. know like how connected it is to your first book and um, how much it's kind of its own thing. Um, well, I mean, in a like literal sense of like, is this a sequel? Are there the same characters? Is it the same world? Um, no, it's not. It's not connected in that capacity. It's its own, you know, book. Um, but I'm still interested in the same things I'm interested in as like a person, as a writer. And so um, 
both of the books, uh, sort of the inciting incident is somebody disappearing, um, somebody else looking for that person. Um, and they're both kind of like what I would consider like a weird mystery, you know, it doesn't really follow um, the exact beats of a thriller, but um, there is a sense of like, this thing happened and we don't know why. Um, and so I think that they're sort of like very spiritually aligned. I do think that like, if you like one of the books, you'll like the other, um, even though the writing style is really different in them. Um, but I, I, I think that they kind of cover sort of like the similar, a similar like vibe space, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Was there another part to that question? I'm forgetting. Yeah, well, just like um, what was kind of the seed of this book or where, what kind right. of was the inspiration for it? Um, so I think that I can't like really talk about where this book came from without mentioning that, you know, right after my first book came out, I started writing another one. And um, I spent like two years on it and it just like did not work. Like it for, for years, it did not work. I could not find a book from the idea I had. I could not find real people from the characters. It just didn't work. And um, I was getting frustrated and I did this like very typical writer thing where I was like, well, I've spent two years on it. I have to keep working on it. All this time is gone. Um, but then I, got the idea for this book and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute but I got the idea for this book and I said to myself you know I'm just gonna work on it for a month I'm just gonna work on it for a month and see how much I can get done and I think that was like the most productive writing month of my entire life like I like I've never written that more before or after and like might never I think I wrote like I mean this might not sound like a lot for a lot of people but for me it was huge I think I wrote like 23 to 25,000 words that month and that is like that's huge. That's insane. That's, that's <laughs> huge. Like I, that is, that is in a very productive month for me normally. I'm like, and this is like high end productive 10,000 words. And that is like deliberate focused work. Not like necessarily every day, but like in a consistent way, I can maybe hit that. And this just like tumbled out. Um, and I think part of that is like, I just like was, it was the other book was like, it was like pulling teeth, getting like paragraphs on the page. And that's why I think I had just like a lot of pent up writing juice that was ready to spill out. <laughs> writing gross. juice, that's so gross. Sorry, it's so gross. <laughs> but um, I think accurate, yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to be like writing energy because it, I don't know, but anyway, so yeah, so um, that's kind of how this book got going. And then after that month, of course, I continued writing it until I was done. Um, but I think the idea, um, as with all of my books, it's it kind of combined a lot of things I've been interested in for a really long time. Like I love um, sort of supernatural stories. I always used to watch when I was a teenager and still now I watch a lot of like supernatural teen dramas. I like ghost story horror movies um, and ghost stories that are not horror. I like gothic fiction. Um, and, um, you know, so it, it kind of brought in all of these vibes that I uh, really like in the fiction that I read. Um, and I was also very kind of inspired um, by 
the movie Personal Shopper. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, with Kristen so Stewart. good. Yeah, it's so yeah. good, right? And obviously there's like, there's texting in that movie. And without spoiling the movie, it's not the exact same. The texting is a little bit more like, you're not really sure who she's texting with. Um, but the kind of vibe or idea of texting with ghosts as a concept kind of came from there. As well as um, it really... It, I, I was really struck by the way that movie did something that I am like have been looking for in whether it's my fiction movies that I almost never see, which is the way that something incredibly emotional or dramatic can be happening on your phone. And yet you are just going about a normal day or a normal sequence of events. And you either can't demonstrate the emotion that you're experiencing because of what happened, or you are demonstrating it. And to any observers, that emotion is contextless, um, you know, but like something is happening to you and it might be happening over text and it might be happening because someone posted something on Instagram, but something is happening to you because of something going on online and including texting in online there. Mm -hmm. um, but what you're doing in your body is totally divorced from that. You are maybe going for a walk or just sitting at your house or working at your job. Um, and so I really wanted to bring that kind of like real thing into a book. Um, and yeah, and I was just like in a place in my life when I was spending a lot of like social time and um, was sort of really out and about in LA a lot and was really having a lot of fun. Um, and so that, and that's why I brought in this kind of like social element originally, though that got refined to be more of like the more emotionally complicated things I experienced as part of like being like a very peripheral member of like the LA uh, queer scene, like for, you know, um, non-cis white or just cis gay men, which is, you know, a different scene altogether. So yeah, I mean, those were, those were, all, those were all the things that I was thinking about um, as I got started writing this book. Yeah, I think that what you're saying about this kind of disassociation between your body and the intangible things that are happening in your technological self to your technological self the persona that you have on social media like that is one of the most uncanny things that we've all just accepted as normal yeah um that that we have these parallel lives now everybody has this parallel life that lives in our little our little phone um, and it's, those lives have only gotten bigger and bigger. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, I wanted to kind of, I'm trying to think of how to transition this, I guess, going back, <laughs> going back to dissociation. Um, so ghosts, <laughs> ghosts, ghosts are a ghosts. big part of this, this book. And I like the, the double meaning here with ghosts, um, and social media to be ghosted. Um, but in fact, in this book, the ghost is the person who is, staying in touch, staying in contact. Yeah. Um, can you first tell us what are ghosts in your mind? What is a ghost? I mean, in, in, in my mind or in the world in the, of this book? In the in book, in the book. Okay, okay. Um, in this book, ghosts are, it's pretty literal, right? Ghosts are 
the sort of conscious essence, the essence of the consciousness of a person who once lived. And um, yeah, they are generally, their corporeal form tends to be pretty slippery. Like sometimes they're very corporeal, sometimes they're not. And sometimes that corp that like form can transform into something more monstrous, but generally they are um, kind of like the essence of like a person's consciousness. I'm not a religious person, but if I was, I would maybe say soul. But like that's not how I think of it. Um, I think of it as like you know the body is dead, but the the consciousness lives on. Um, but it is not unaltered by the event of having died. <laughs> um, do you mind if I read a little excerpt that I think no. you, where you address this? Go for it. All right. So I, I really like this quote. Um, Ghosts are creatures constantly in that mid-transformation state. Their non-corporal bodies sometimes half-form mist, sometimes a fully defined body. Sometimes that body is contorted and growling and almost fully a beast. Um, so this is an excerpt from the book. And uh, I, think, I think I really like your emphasis on this kind of in-betweenness that, that ghosts aren't just like they've crossed over and then they're coming back to say hello. It's like, no, they're stuck in between. And what you're getting are these flashes of static coming through that are somewhat resemble who they used to be or maybe something different. Um, it's just very eerie and good and creepy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm so, glad, yeah. I tried to make them as scary as you can on the page. Yeah, they're scary. <laughs> I'll, wa <laughs> I'll warn our readers. Um, so can you make the connection then between this version of ghost and the kind of the ghost that's appearing uh, to Eva via text message? Yeah, you know, so the ghost that Eve uh, appears to Eve via text message is her best friend, um, whose name is Miguel Miggy. Um, and he, um, about one year before the events of the book, had committed suicide. Um, and this was a very traumatic event for Eve. Um, and but she's been able to see her ghosts all of her life. She refers to herself as a medium. That's kind of how she identifies a medium or a witch. And um, she so so when her friend, who in life, you know, they texted a lot, um, when he died, um, pretty soon thereafter, with like a couple of days later, he starts texting her again. Um, and he, and so most of the ghosts that Eve encounters in the book are people that she doesn't know. Um, she's encountering some like sort of physical manifestation of a ghost, whereas Miggy is really just um, a conversation partner um, and somebody who is, um, you know, a sounding board for her, but also somebody that kind of uh, gives her tough love when she needs it. She does not always accept this. Um, and so she, is kind of able to continue to be attached to this person, to not let go of this person that to everybody else in her life 
has died and they have or well, almost everybody and they have spent you know the past year all of their friends um you know working through their grief but also moving past you know um this this event and obviously you know when, when a person passes you they stay with you you never fully are like oh i don't care anymore and i forget but you process your grief um, which is not something that Eve has any intention of doing um, because she does, and, and, and she uses the ability to text him to simply refuse to uh, process the fact that her friend has passed away, has mm -hmm. taken his own life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that ties in really well with the kind of social media landscape we're in now where if somebody dies, their social accounts still live on, they're still there. And um, and, and even like less in a less extreme sense, like if you have a friend breakup, um, their social accounts are still there. You'll still see them pop up every now and again, even though you're trying to get over it and get past yeah. it. Um, the internet doesn't let you forget. It doesn't let you move on um, in the way that you know humans have done for millennia. Like that content is still out there floating around. Those personalities are still out there floating around, always ready to pop up when we least expect them. Yeah, and it's like, you know, I don't know how many times, like, I've done this, my friends have done this, but, like, how many times, like, like a friend who is going through a breakup or is, like, you know, a couple months, like, out from a breakup, you know, like, they maybe have, like, blocked their, like, ex on all the social media accounts, but if they pop open an incognito window or even just log out of their account, there's their, like, public Instagram, there's their Twitter, like, they can see if they're, like, seeing somebody else they can see what they're talking about and it and the only way to avoid it is willpower right you cannot create a circumstance unless you are lucky enough to have an ex that's totally offline my like one of my like worst exes is totally basically totally offline which is like huge <laughs> for me because if i if that wasn't the case it would be just my will and if my if, if i have the willpower to stay away 23 hours a day great but like you slip for one hour and you can like fuck yourself up over and over again you know anytime you slip um mm -hmm. so yeah 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 um i'm wondering if you might want to read a little excerpt if there's a good good spot sure um i wonder what i should read from this um Because I, now that we've been talking about the ghosts, I feel like I should pull up something that's ghost-like. This is the part you will have to edit out. I gotcha. I'm taking notes. Let's see if I can find. I think I know what I want to read from, but I just have to find it. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I found it. it's just a small section. Okay. So this is, um, this actually isn't about the ghosts, but it's about kind of what we were talking about, about like social media and, and, and how you have access to people. Um, so this is from the perspective of our narrator, Eve, um, her best friend, Ezra, um, 
she hears that he and his girlfriend have broken up at the very beginning of the book. And then the next morning, he kind of vanishes. He stops responding to her text messages. He has uh, temporarily deactivated his social media accounts. And um, Eve kind of goes from like zero to 60 into a panic spiral about this. Um, and so this is kind of in the midst of that spiral where she's really realizing that she doesn't know that she's like trying to like find out where Ezra is and is trying to figure like try to trace his footsteps a little bit, but you know, kind of hasn't been able to find him. So it's just a quick section. Even absent, Ezra was at my fingertips. In the long backward scroll of my Instagram grid, there was his hand wrapped around a margarita glass from last weekend. There he was across the table from me at El Condor, his biggest doofy smile sitting on a couch on Georgie's porch, surrounded by all of our friends, waving at me in a continued loop because I'd used the boomerang setting to take the picture. There he is sandwiched between Nosley and me at the booth at the Holloway. Nas's left arm reaching away from us to hold the phone that took the pic. Nas, Ezra, and I out at Joshua Tree, posing next to a rock where we'd stop to take pictures because someone had graffitied the word sick boy on it. Ezra and me in the pastel outdoors chairs, in the back of the garden area of the wine bar Tabula Rasa, Ezra staring at the camera and me looking somewhere off to the left. Ezra's arms outstretched under a big pink sunset. Ezra in a bar with Nosley, her face scrunched up and him sticking his tongue out. Ezra sitting on Lydia's floor mid-conversation. Ezra looking grim at the beach. Ezra in the park. Ezra outside his building. Ezra in a Dodger's hat. The quicker I scroll, the more he blurs into unrecognizability until he is nothing but shapes and colors. At the bottom of the scroll, there is a picture of me, Ezra, and Miggy. They have their arms around me, and we all look happy. Oof. Yeah, the volume of content is yeah. just overwhelming there. Um, thank you for reading that. You're welcome. Um, so I wanted I want to talk a little bit more about um, the kind of importance of this friend group and the social scene that they're in um, that you're kind of breaking down in that excerpt. So you were you mentioned at the, uh, at the top of this episode that this was kind of you were kind of writing this um, as you were experiencing and enjoying the LA queer community. Um, what do you see as like, what did you take away from your real life experiences and put into this book? And what do you, what's like the most kind of like LA sort of social stuff going on in here? Oh boy. Um, well, I should say that um, I also took experiences from, you know, just like my actual close friends who are like a mix of people, some of whom are queer, some of whom are straight. Um, so it's not just queer scene stuff, but um I guess I would say that I'm a person who is both attracted to the scene um, and <laughs> my cat's running around. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that's very queer scene vibes is to have my cats running around anyway. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm a person that's like, I'm, I'm, I'm a person that likes to go out um, and likes to spend time socially. And so I'm attracted to any kind of like scene of my people. But I also am, you know, um, intimidated and afraid of the scene. Um, I'm also, you know, like, I'm not like a core scenester person. Um, and I'm more of a bar person than like a club person. And a lot of the like queer scene for, um, you know, 
women or um, female identified people or essentially just like any queer scene that's like not the cishet vibes male West Hollywood scene. Um, and sorry that I called them het vibes, but like that's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, um, I, I live in West Hollywood, like right in the middle of Boys Town, so I know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just like the that that's but like like th- that scene I actively don't like. The scene that's kind of a more East Side, very queer, fun party scene is a scene that like I really do want to be a part of, but it but it's like. But I also am like a little too scared to be like a full scenester, but I'm also like not not there. And so much of it does revolve around these like dance nights or sort of club vibe nights. And I'm much more of a bar person. And we don't really have any um, queer bars in the city, you know, um, bars that cater to people who aren't gay men um, are like don't exist really we have nights but not like a full-on lesbian bar or a full-on queer bar and so what happens that i find is that we inhabit and the scene inhabits these like queer adjacent spaces right like if you for example um a i know a couple of bartenders who are queer women um or who and then so queer women go to the bars where those bartenders bartend and create like little like a little space in there. It's like where you go because there isn't just a bar to go to, right? It's the closest thing. Um, or if somebody is, you know, like like is a promoter that does one of the queer parties and also works at a different space, then that kind of gets folded in and becomes part of the queer space as well. So none of the bars that she goes to are like gay bars in the book. Um, there are gay bars that on the east side that I sometimes go to, um, like, but like I very consciously left them out of this book. Like, um, the Eagle's not there, Akbar is not there. Um, what's that one called? Fault Line. Um, that's not in there, um, and that's because I wanted it to very much be like this queer scene inhabiting these otherwise straight spaces, because that's like a lot of my experience with. Um, hanging out with like other queer people in a party way in Los Angeles. Um, another thing that is very much a hallmark of just like my in general social life in LA is house parties. Um, that's a big thing in this city, um, which I think makes it different than some other major cities. Like you have a lot less of, it's my understanding that you have a lot less of a house party scene in like New York City and in like, um, Chicago, which are the other cities I have like some understanding or experience with. Um, And I think that's just like because of the way that LA is, you know, obviously it's like a more sprawly kind of city. There's not really like most people that I spend time with don't live in the downtown zone. And, you know, people like live in house like environments when they're renters. And um, and then there's also like, people talk about how like the house party scene has something to do with like driving. Um, and this is like historically from before there was ride sharing, um, which I lived in LA before there was ride sharing. And it was like, it was like always kind of a thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, like how to go to the bars and get home from the bars. Like I've had, I had big nights of friends' birthdays where we like got a taxi, like called a taxi like, we were like, okay, we're gonna, like, 
reserve this car days ahead so that we can like go wild at a bar because like that's what you had to do um but yeah so so there there is a house party in the um in the book a big house party and that is another sort of hallmark of the social scene for me mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's i think it's striking that it's all kind of these unofficial gatherings right these kind of like not i don't want to say parasitic but they're like taking place in unsanctioned spaces spaces where that are not explicitly for them um and that that also makes social media so much more important because that's the documentation of this scene is is just through individual social media and otherwise it doesn't really officially exist right yeah Mm-hmm. It doesn't have a permanent like location, a permanent address. And I will say there has been some like movement to make um, some like new queer spaces on, especially on like the east side. There's a great coffee shop and I actually, I haven't checked in with them on COVID and I hope they're like doing okay. But like, it's, is Cutie still a thing? Does that, are they still up and running? I don't, I don't remember. They were in some trouble mm-hmm. before. COVID, um, which is a coffee shop. So that was like a non, there's, a, there's, you know, they want to, there's, a lot of people who like talk about the importance of having queer spaces that are not based around like partying and drinking, which I very much agree with that sentimentally, but as like a person that like loves bars, it is not as, I'm not as hungry for it. Um, and there was um, a sort of strong effort um, to open a new queer bar slash lesbian bar in Los Angeles lesbian bar while also saying that like they're very inclusive of like all different kinds of queer identities but like um also connecting to the history of lesbian bars is how I understood this place um and they were kind of gearing up to like look for a space and open before COVID hit so I think it still exists as an entity and that will resume post-COVID but uh we don't have like a bar to go back to really yeah, and I know a lot of the um, the kind of old standbys have closed. I mean, over here in WeHo, we've lost Gold Coast, um, and up in the valley, we lost Oil Pan Harry's. Those, those yeah, are the same really landlord. Sad. Same landlord owns all those <laughs> properties. Yes. Classic. Yep. Um, I will leave that research for uh, actual journalists. But um, but yeah, I think it's I think it's really interesting to talk about kind of the yeah the impermanence or the sort of changeability of the LA queer scene um, and and how that kind of impacts these characters and how they're moving through all of these these impermanent spaces. Um, One of the other themes in the book I wanted to address and then I think uh, I'll see if there's anything else you want to talk about but um, is witches. I mean I want to talk about witches. Witches are the best. Witches are so cool. Uh, <laughs> so I, I want to talk about, um, so Eve calls herself, uh, a medium or a witch. Um, yeah. how does she kind of think about that term and how does that relate to like our modern understanding of what witches are and what they do? Right. Um, well, Eve is, Eve has like, like a very like matter of fact way of thinking about herself as a witch, um, that, you know, is is kind of just because like there's like a very practical supernatural thing that has always been a part of her life which is that she sees ghosts right so there's not really a woo-woo element to it for her historically from like childhood i think that she's really kind of gotten into a kind of like 
witchy scene in Los Angeles and like likes it there and has fun um is sometimes skeptical but like her understanding of herself is very matter of a fact she's like I see ghosts I can communicate with them I can work on doing exorcisms I can learn to hone this craft um the same way that somebody that like maybe has like a talent for math or a talent for knitting or pottery would think of themselves as like a potter or a knitter. That's her way of thinking herself, thinking of herself as like a medium. It is a thing that she does and it's a skill that she has um, that other, that like few other people have. Um, so that's like one element of the way that she thinks about it. And that's how she wants to present it to the reader. But I think that in the book, you can see, um, you can, see around her perspective a little bit and peel up the corners that it is all that her like um supernatural ability has been like kind of the source of some trauma in her life um and maybe a little bit um if you want to get super psychoanalytic about eve you can definitely think about like her relationship with her parents um and the way that that might affect the way that she deals with her relationships with friends now um because um there is, in another sense, the fact that like Eve sees things that other people don't see and that other people would say are not there. And um, to share that information casually with the wrong person can, or the, you know, at the wrong time, can cause all kinds of, you know, lowercase t traumas, arguments, fight, uppercase t traumas, probably, like lots of problems. And so there's, there's hinted at in the book, um, and, and you never really see Eve think about her parents, except for in like snatches of moments. And it's pretty clear that she doesn't have a relationship with them, um, or her relationship with them is not based on trust, honesty, and openness. Um, and that that is because she can see ghosts. So um, it has, it's kind of like a very, uh, it's like it's like something that she wants to treat very casually, um, almost like anything else in her life. But of course it's not like that. And um, you know, and, and, and you can kind of see the consequences of her not really acknowledging that uh, throughout the book. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, are you a witch? Do you practice? I don't think that I'm so I'm not a witch I don't think I would call myself a witch in the real sense I think I would say that I like like a witchy sort of thing and I'm definitely like um I mean like I'm very into tarot I don't read it myself but I have friends who are readers and like always want to hear from them um I love astrology I love ritual um and I very much think about it as a way to kind of like, it's, it's, it's a way to, in a safe, fun way, access like maybe more difficult things of like a person's emotional landscape or their past or like what's going on. It's like, you know, like I could talk about like, I don't know, something I'm sad about or somebody can do a tarot reading and we can talk about it on both this like metaphorical and very literal and very fun, like like symbols and and to like symbols to dissect and little mysteries about yourself, um, little hints at the future maybe. And so that's just such a defanged way to kind of go into these really fangy, difficult things. Um, and so I, I really love it for that. And so 
when people are like, I don't like tarot, I'm like, okay, so there's like two things. It's like you don't like talking about yourself or you don't want to, or you don't want any kind of metaphorical element in talking about yourself or you don't know what tarot is. Mm-hmm. And those are the three options to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think tarot is a really useful creative tool. Mm-hmm. Um, I've used yeah. it for, for working on projects and figuring out which direction to go. And it's, yeah, it's also just so good for processing in a way that doesn't feel like work. Uh, yeah, feels, exactly. It, yeah, it feels fun. And it feels like, it feels like making art, like interpreting these symbols. It's great. Um, all right. So uh, do you want to read one more excerpt and then maybe we'll have a final question? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think that I will. Um, what is it? I'm, I'm trying to figure out what excerpt to read. Okay. Um, I will. Um, Do you have like a preference for something that's like really ghosty or something that's just like kind of like an emotional moment? I mean, I'm always going to go for ghosts. Okay, cool. If I, I have a choice. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out where Bonnie is. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay, I'm going to read and I'm going to like maybe pause because I'm going to like skip some certain things so it's not too long of a reading, but I'm going to read from a section um, here. Okay, so starting. Um, So this section also kind of comes from when um, Eve is in her original kind of big panic spiral um, about what is going on with Ezra. Um, and so she breaks into his house or like knows where he keeps his key. So goes into his apartment, um, which obviously is a violation. Um, but she doesn't think of it that way. And she is looking for any clues as to where he might be. Um, and at this point she starts to, she's thinking of Ezra as in trouble. And that is her framework right now is that like something bad is happening and that nobody else is taking it seriously. Um, So here she is in Ezra's apartment. Um, And I will read to you from the section a little bit. Ezra's slender silver laptop was sitting open on his desk, magnetically drawing me in. I fit easily into the grooves of his desk chair. Flakes of his skin and stray eyebrows hair clung to his unclean keyboard. I, of course, know all of Ezra's passwords. Online, I checked his Gmail first. His inbox was was clogged with an annoying wave of pointless emails. Newsletters from a dozen or so companies that Ezra had once purchased something from online. Urgent calls for donations from the Democratic Socialists of America one from our senator's re-election campaign, one from a political action group that was either doing something good in Mexico or at the Mexico border, a notice from Bank of America that his monthly statement was available. I was tempted to delete all of them to save him the chore. Once he turned up, he might not even notice anyone had done this for him. Do we even recognize the absence of our usual digital trash? I decided not to answer that particular question now. No new emails of substance. 
I opened a search tab and typed find my iPhone into Google. I typed in his Google ID and the alternate password he used to protect his Apple account. Once I logged in, I clicked onto the All Devices drop-down menu at the top of the page and saw the iPhone image that represented Ezra's own phone. In little gray letters, it was designated offline. I felt Lotus, Ezra's cat, rub against my ankle before I heard her claws in the wood. I'm going to find your dad, I told her, closing his laptop and reaching down between her ears. She wouldn't tolerate the touch. She sprinted away over her windowsill and out into the garden. It was then that I noticed the windowsill was wiped clean of cascarilla, which is a powder that she uses to keep ghosts away. And I felt a spirit gathering, the kind of spirit that liked to cut me off from the outside world. Fucking Bonnie. I found her hovering in the kitchen with her ghoulish smile and nasty bloodied fingernails, trying to hold on to human form. Sup, Bonnie, I said. Bonnie was the ghost of a teenage girl who lived in the house that Ezra's apartment once was in the 1910s. She hated me, would have haunted me constantly if she had the power to do, so, to do so, and she was deeply, passionately in love with Ezra, who of course couldn't return her love for many reasons, including the fact that he couldn't see ghosts, but also because ghost life had turned her insane. Bonnie had once tried to be cool with me, but had turned against me when I refused to be the conduit between her and Ezra so she could start something up with him. Once when she got violent and shitty, when she managed to log onto Ezra's phone and text Nasli a death threat from his number, we tried unsuccessfully to exercise her. Bonnie's hold on the building was as strong as its foundation, and she'd stayed with the building for decades while the neighborhoods shifted, home to a Hasidic Jewish family in the 20th, 20s and 30s, when the whole neighborhood walked every Saturday morning to Temple Beth Israel, home to the Hispanic families in the 60s and 70s, home to the members of the Avenues gang in the 90s. Now Bonnie hovered, mostly incorporeal, the cascarella keeping her at bay whenever I was around. She learned internet memes over Ezra's unsuspecting shoulder. She listened to true crime podcasts with him. She scanned the fashion blogs Ezra used for research for his girl novels. She tried to stir up drama. If the rest of the world could hear the voices of the unliving, I'd try to land Bonnie her own reality show. Bonnie, honey, I said, were you watching us last night? This isn't your house, Bonnie said, as usual. This isn't your house, get out. All of the windows rattled in their panes, a show of force that I ignored. She had gotten extra haughty and shitty since my failed exorcism, a real check on my ego. I'll let you hang around today if you tell me where, where Ezra went. You're stupid, she said, flickering. You're as bad as that other bitch. She thinks if she can't feel me, I'm not here. She thinks I don't see how he hates eating her nasty, fishy pussy. Bonnie hated Nosley even more than she hated me. They broke up, I said. Isn't that nice? Bonnie's whole body nodded. She was thirsty for ghosts, thirsty for news like that. If you tell me when Ezra left, I'll give you something you want, I said. It was medium self-protection 101 to never make a deal with a spirit, but I was wigged out enough by Ezra's prolonged silence to slide into this slightly dangerous territory. Bonnie's eyes sparkled with the prospect of a present. Ghost facial expressions are exaggerated, easy to read. Okay, I'll stop there. Oh my gosh, Bonnie. Bonnie, Bonnie's iconic. She's so awful. <laughs> she is. I, I would totally watch her reality show though. Oh, yeah, she'd be so great. Just a mess. <laughs> yeah, where is the ghost reality show? Netflix, get on this. Yeah, come on, guys. I <laughs> guess maybe that's um, 
I never have seen this, but I keep meaning to read, um, I keep meaning to see what we do in the shadows or Losa Spookies, and I feel like that probably is the vibe. Yeah, it's definitely, it definitely is. Yeah, what we do in the shadows is great. I haven't seen Losa Spookies, but um, thank you for that reading. Uh, before we end, I wanted to see first if there's anything you want to talk about, like if there's anything I haven't asked about that you'd love to expound upon. Uh, I feel like we've covered a lot of the fun stuff about the book. I should say that like, um, you know, people are saying that it's like a quick, easy, fun read. Um, and I really love that. I love to hear that feedback. You know, I really, as a writer, I think this is not the only thing you can do with books, but it's one thing you can do, which is like, I just want to have like a really fun read. Um, and for the reader to just like get a lot of pleasure out of it and excitement and it doesn't necessarily have to be more complicated than that it can be if they if if that happens but it you know that's kind of my goal and focus and so um i really hope that that is people's experience yeah um and you guys if you are peaked if your interest is peaked by this conversation you can join us on friday the second or friday the 5th of february at 6 30 katie's going to be in conversation with ivy Picota um over on crowdcast and um, that's going to be free to join the live stream or watch the replay so if you hear this after the fact don't worry you can still see the whole conversation up on our crowdcast page crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks so i gotta do my little plug <laughs> um so all right so katie uh thank you so much for talking with me today this has been really fun i'm so stoked for our audience to get a little taste of your book, get out there, order a copy um, from Skylight. We've got plenty. Um, Katie, what's, what are you working on next? Do you have anything else going on? Are you taking a little break, a well-deserved break? I, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a third novel, um, but it's not there yet. So I probably shouldn't like say what it is, especially with my track record. Uh, Cause who knows in like two months I could be like, well, I just started something new. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I am working on a third novel and um, a couple of other exciting things that I can't talk about yet uh, might be coming up. Um, but if you follow me on Twitter at Katie alert, <laughs> then you can hear all about them as they happen. <laughs> all right, you guys get over there. Follow Katie. Uh, Try to stay away from ghosts if you can, but you know, sometimes you can't. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me again. I had a really fun time. Yeah, me too. All right. Um, well, thank you all for listening. Again, the book is You Up by Katie DiSabato, and she's going to be appearing on our Crowdcast in just a few days. So uh, we hope to see you there. All right. Ta ta for now. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon. I see.